Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Michael Hollick to the show today. He is the author of the new book, The Vitamin D Solution, A Three-Step Strategy to Cure Our Most Common Health Problems. He is the professor of medicine, physiology, and biophysics, a director of the General Clinical Research Center, the director of the Vitamin D Skin and Bone Research Laboratory, the director of Biologic Effects of Light Research Center, Boston University Medical Center. And he is here today to open up our understanding about vitamin D, about the fact that it's not even a vitamin, that it's a hormone. We're going to talk about facts and new discoveries about sunlight and vitamin D3, and we're going to do our best to clarify the new science and the scientific discoveries that we need to take into our lives and into our day-to-day existence regarding the sun. Since photosynthesis of vitamin D has been occurring on Earth for more than 750 million years, why is it that we're all so scared of the sun now? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Michael Hollick to its rainmaking time. Welcome, doctor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the first thing I want you to explain is your overall gestalt on vitamin D and sunlight. And I'd also like to hear what you're going through to bring the new knowledge to the public and to institutions across the world. Well, the good news is that I think over the past three or four years, uh, mainly because of people like you and many of the press have, have really gotten the public's interest about vitamin D. And as a result, it's basically trickled down to their doctors. So now, actually, the assay for 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is what you want to ask your doctor to order to determine your vitamin D status, is the most ordered assay by physicians in the United States. So it's becoming a, uh, a very hot topic and is on the radar screen for a lot of physicians, especially um, internists and uh, general practitioners. So that's very good news. Back in 2004, when I first wrote my first book, The UV Advantage, and had suggested that we should get some sensible sun exposure. Um, I was professor of dermatology at my institution, and I was asked by the head of dermatology that I basically had a choice, either to renounce what I had in the book, which is to recommend sensible sun exposure as a reasonable way to get your vitamin D, um, or you would have to resign as professor of dermatology, which I ultimately did. Were you asked to resign? Yes, and, uh, and I did so in 2004. And the reason I was a professor of dermatology is that back in the mid-1980s, I realized that your skin not only makes vitamin D, but turns out to be the target tissue for the active form of vitamin D. And we went on to show that skin cells have a receptor for vitamin D and that vitamin D, the active form, regulates proliferation. And so I introduced the concept of using activated vitamin D to treat psoriasis. And it's one of the first-line treatment choices for treating mild forms of psoriasis worldwide. When you were asked to leave, did you still want to stay, or were you ready to go? No, I, I remain at Boston University Medical Center, and my, I had a secondary appointment in the Department of Dermatology, of which I was very proud of, because I thought that I had made significant contributions to the Dermatology Society. And, in fact, they recognized that. In the year 2000, um, I was awarded the Psoriasis Achievement Research Award from the Skin Foundation for my innovative work um, in the treatment of psoriasis. 
explain it to us as easily as you possibly can, even though I realize from reading your book, The Vitamin D Solution, it's way more complex. But apparently vitamin D targets more than 2,000 genes in the body? That's correct. It turns out very interesting that, you know, everybody kind of always focused on vitamin D being important for bone health in children, and that's true. We also know that vitamin D is very important for bone health in adults, and not only does it help prevent osteoporosis and fracture, but the painful bone disease, osteomalacia, which is often misdiagnosed as fibromyalgia. Well, we then began to realize um, in the 1980s and 1990s that not only does your bone and your intestine recognize vitamin D, but that the receptor for vitamin D was found in the brain and in the colon and in uh, the pancreas, um, in your immune cells. And so people began to realize that vitamin D had a very important role in overall health and well-being. And studies have been done looking at how many genes are being turned on and turned off by vitamin D. One study demonstrated that up to 200 genes uh, were being regulated directly or indirectly by vitamin D. But with new revelations coming out about vitamin D and more uh, tissues and organs responding to vitamin D, it's estimated that up to 2,000 genes in the body may be directly or indirectly regulated by vitamin D. And you said that that's roughly 6% of the body. Correct. That's about one-sixth of the human genome. Excuse me, the human genome. That's right. A lot of people are curious, do they go out into the sun 10, 20 minutes a day? Do they go out at what time? Will it make any difference in northern climates? What do they do? Should they supplement? And of course, there's a whole thing about how much to supplement. Some people say take 5,000 units. Some people take 7,000 units of vitamin D3. Some doctors say only take 2,000 a day. For a consumer, it's very confusing. No question about it. So first of all, the concept of active vitamin D um, is a little bit different. And we now recognize, and, and I actually had, had discovered this when I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, that when you make vitamin D in your skin or you ingest it in your diet, it travels first to your liver and it's converted to 25-hydroxy vitamin D. It's the major circulating form that doctors order. And then it goes to your kidneys and then gets activated there to its final form, known as 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. It's the biologically active form of vitamin D that has all of the biologic functions in the body. Now, in terms of how much sunlight do you need to make vitamin D in your skin, it depends upon time of day, season of the year, latitude, as well as weather conditions and your degree of skin pigmentation. So, but I can give you an example. And I have that in um, the vitamin D solution at the end tables. And I recommend that you can go outside in the spring, summer, and fall if you live above Atlanta, Georgia, and um, for about 50% of the time that it takes to get a mild sunburn, um, you can expose maybe your arms, legs, abdomen, and back. Always protect your face because it's the most sun-exposed and most sun-damaged, two to three times a week. So why did I pick Atlanta, Georgia? Because if you live above Atlanta, Georgia, you basically cannot make any vitamin D in your skin from November through February. 
early morning and late afternoon, it's the same issue. It's just like winter sunlight. This is not just about sunlight, then. It's about a kind of sunlight. Yeah, so it turns out that what it has to do with is the angle of the sun. Because uh, under the most ideal circumstances, if you live at the equator in the summertime, at, in, at noontime, no more than about 1% of the vitamin D-producing ultraviolet rays hit the Earth's surface. And so as you move north and south of the equator, the sun is coming in at, a, at an oblique angle. It has to go through more ozone. And by doing so, the vitamin D-producing rays are being absorbed. And so in the wintertime, the sun is at an oblique angle. It has to go through so much ozone that essentially no vitamin D-producing rays hit the Earth's surface, and therefore you cannot make any vitamin D. Even if you stay hours outside in the sun in the wintertime, say here in Boston. Also, in the early morning and late afternoon, the sun is exactly the same, right? It's just coming over the horizon. And so those rays are all efficiently being absorbed by the ozone layer. So very little, if any, vitamin D is produced, except between about the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. We know skin pigmentation has a dramatic influence on vitamin D production, as does sunscreen. If you put a sunscreen on with an SPF of 30, it absorbs about... 95 to 97% of the vitamin D producing rays. So guess what? It reduces your skin's ability to make vitamin D by 95 to 97%. For African Americans, they have natural sunscreen, and as a result, it reduces their ability to make vitamin D in their skin by as much as 90%. They need to be outside three, five, ten times longer than a white person to make the same amount of vitamin D. Aging of affects a variety of processes. It also affects your ability to make vitamin D in your skin. If you compare a 20-year-old to a 70-year-old, a 70-year-old only makes about 30% of what a 20-year-old can make. But your skin has such a huge capacity to make vitamin D that we showed that even 70-year-olds exposed to sensible sun exposure, as I outlined in the vitamin D solution, are able to maintain their blood levels of vitamin D in a satisfactory way. Well, I noticed that you demarcated a sensible sun exposure, but that could be 20 minutes for somebody, right? Correct. Like I said, it depends. So if it's 10 a.m. in the morning, say here in Boston, and I know I'm going to get a mild sunburn after being outside from 10 to 11, then I'd probably stay outside from about 10 to 10.30, followed by putting good sun protection on. And like I said, always protect your face. It's the most sun-exposed, most sun-damaged. It's only 9% of your body surface, so it doesn't provide you with very much vitamin D anyway. So what do you do to protect your face? So I use this either a, a broad-rim hat or I cycle, and so I'll put a sunscreen on. A broad-spectrum UVB, UVA sunscreen with the SPF of 30. Now, you also wrote that people who are obese or have a high percentage of body fat also have trouble getting enough vitamin D. Why? The reason is that vitamin D is fat-soluble, and it loves to be in body fat. In fact, vitamin D is stored in your body fat. And our hunter-gatherer forefathers, being outside every day, were making lots of vitamin D in the spring, summer, and fall. And so they could store it in their body fat. And during the wintertime, as they were using their body fat for an energy source, they were likely releasing vitamin D back into their bloodstream so that they would not become vitamin D deficient. But it turns out that if you have so much body fat, if you're obese, a BMI of greater than 30, 
a lot of the vitamin D gets into the body fat and basically gets lost and can't get back out. And so we did a study, and we took healthy adults with a BMI of greater than 30 or less than 30, and we either gave them an oral dose of vitamin D or put them in our tanning bed to, to mimic sunlight exposure. Those with a BMI of greater than 30 only raise their blood level by about 30% to 40% of what a person of normal weight would raise. And so it's well documented that obese people need two up to five times more vitamin D to both treat and prevent vitamin D deficiency. That's just remarkable that even someone who's 30 or 35 pounds overweight would experience the same thing. That's correct that um, the body fat content makes a very big difference. And um, so it's worthwhile to be sure that you're increasing your vitamin D intake. And maybe we can go through just a little bit about how much is recommended. Yes, please do. Um, The Institute of Medicine uh, has now at least realized that the uh, recommendations from 1997 were totally inadequate. Back then, it was recommended that basically all children and adults up to the age of 70 only needed 200 units of vitamin D a day. But in 2011, they came out with new recommendations. They recommend children one year of age and older that they need 600 units a day, and adults need 600 units a day until they're the age of 70, in which case they need 800 units a day. I chaired the Endocrine Practice Guidelines Committee And this is a committee of experts in vitamin D for both pediatric and adult medicine. And we reviewed the literature very carefully and came up with recommendations for children. We believe that 600 to 1,000 units a day is more appropriate for children one year of age up to 18. And that adults, 1,500 to 2,000 units a day is what they need to satisfy that requirement. And like I said, if you're obese, you probably need two, 3,000, maybe even 4,000 units of vitamin D a day. I personally take 3,000 units of vitamin D a day from supplements, my diet, and also I follow my own advice and do some sensible sun exposure by cycling, uh, playing tennis, and also gardening. If you weren't doing those other aspects of sensible sun exposure, would you supplement more? Um, I have found, because we've done a study and showed that if adults take two to 3,000 units a day, children 1,000 units a day, they can satisfy their body's vitamin D requirement. Unless, like I said, there are extenuating circumstances, like if they're obese, they're on medications such as prednisone, for example, or anti-seizure medications that destroy vitamin D. What other medications destroy vitamin D? I'm curious. Yeah, the major ones are anti-seizure medications like dilantin, as well as um, any kind of steroid like prednisone, uh, for example, or cortisol uh, are the major ones, but also AIDS medications can destroy vitamin D. And even the ingredient in St. John's wort can um, destroy vitamin D. On page 232 of the Vitamin D Solution, you say that the presence of calcium and vitamin D3, the body turns down the volume on this fat-storing enzyme. Without adequate calcium and vitamin D available, the body turns up the volume on this fat-storing enzyme. And what you end up with is just that, a higher volume of fat working against everything an individual would like to see happen in his or her body. Explain this, would you? Sure. 
So it turns out that um, that, that there are several investigators, including uh, my laboratory, has been very interested in looking at the fat cell and to see how responsive it is to vitamin D and what vitamin D is doing in fat. Curiously, we've now found the fat cell has a vitamin D receptor, that the fat cell can activate vitamin D locally, and that active vitamin D does regulate fat cell metabolism. And so if you're vitamin D deficient, um, the fat cell can become overactive. And we think that by having adequate vitamin D on board, it may keep fat cell metabolism in check and possibly reduce uh, your risk of developing obesity. That's a big assertion and could be a big discovery. When will you know if the fat lady sings? <laughs> Good question. And, we're, you know, studies are underway right now. They look very promising, but it's hard to know. But what I can tell you is that typically people that are overweight are often couch potatoes, and they just feel tired and achy, and it really it makes it difficult for them to really increase their activity. Vitamin D deficiency causes muscle weakness, as well as causes this painful bone disease, osteomalacia. And if obese people are vitamin D deficient and have muscle weakness and osteomalacia, all the more reason they're going to be couch potatoes and continue to gain weight. So by them correcting their vitamin D deficiency, often it improves muscle function, they have better stamina, improves mood, and um, increases their activity level because they have less aches and pains in their bones, muscles, and joints all to actually, you know, improve their overall health and well-being. Now, when you're talking about vitamin D, are you really talking about vitamin D3? Right. So there's a lot of controversy over the past couple of years about the vitamin D2, vitamin D3 controversy. And I'll put it into perspective. So in, in the vitamin D solution, I point out that the reason that vitamin D2 is the only pharmaceutical form of vitamin D available to physicians is because it predated the FDA. And so the FDA grandfathered vitamin D2. When vitamin D3 was finally easily and cheaply made, nobody wanted to spend the money to get the approval. So vitamin D3 will never be available as a pharmaceutical but by, by as a prescription. However, vitamin D3 now is easily made and it's very cheap. And most supplements now contain vitamin D3. Vitamin D2 comes from yeast and also mushrooms. So mushrooms, for example, exposed to ultraviolet light, which is what the mushroom industry is now doing, can be a good source of vitamin D. It's also good for vegans who don't want an animal source because the vitamin D3 that you get in your supplement usually comes from um, lanolin, from wool sheep. They, they, they get the um, main ingredient uh, from lanolin. So the argument was that if you took vitamin D2, it was less effective than vitamin D3. And possibly if you took vitamin D2, it actually increased the destruction of vitamin D3 in the body, potentially putting you at higher risk for developing vitamin D deficiency. So we did a study and we took healthy adults and we gave them 1,000 units of vitamin D2 or 1,000 units of vitamin D3 for about 11 weeks, 
and we measured their blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is a measure of their vitamin D status, and showed that they were equally bioavailable. Dr. Gordon at Children's Hospital gave vitamin D2 or vitamin D3 to children and demonstrated that they were equally as effective in maintaining vitamin D status. So at least in my opinion, if given in these what we consider to be physiologic doses of a couple of thousand units of vitamin D a day, that vitamin D2 is equally as effective as vitamin D3. And so for vegans, they don't need to worry. They can definitely take vitamin D2. For those in the supermarket that see mushrooms that contain vitamin D, it's perfectly a good source of vitamin D to supplement your requirements. What about the people who say, look, I could go out into the sun and in a half an hour to an hour, I could have 20,000 units of vitamin D come into my body through sunlight. So the thinking at that point is, look, the body is enabled by its nature to handle a high dose of vitamin D. Um, what do you say to that? Oh, that's very true. I mean, we, I, I typically treat my patients with um, the pharmaceutical form of vitamin D. It's 50,000 units, and I give them 50,000 units of vitamin D once a week for eight weeks to fill up the empty vitamin D tank. And that's equivalent to taking 6,000 units a day. And then to prevent them from having recurring vitamin D deficiency, I put them on 50,000 units once every two weeks forever. We published a paper recently in a medical journal demonstrating that after six years in this program, all of my patients are perfectly fine, and their blood levels are in the range of 40 to 60 nanograms per ml, which is where we like them to be. Where are your blood levels? My blood, 54. It was just done a week ago. What do you do for yourself? And so I personally take a 2,000-unit vitamin D supplement, and uh, I drink about three glasses of skim milk a day and take a multivitamin that contains now 1,000 units. So I'm getting somewhere in a range of about 3,000 to 3,500 units of vitamin D a day. And I take it every day. And the reason I do that is because if you get in a routine, you won't forget. Whereas if you think, oh, well, in the summertime, I'm getting sun exposure, and so I don't need to take it. It's probably true, but you can't easily judge how much sun exposure you have, how much surface area you've exposed. So it's true. Under ideal circumstances, if you are in a tanning bed, which mimics sunlight, and you get what's called a minimal erythemal dose, a light pinkness to your skin 24 hours later, whole body with a bathing suit on. For a young adult, it's equivalent to ingesting 20,000 units of vitamin D. And so, yes, you're right. If you expose your arms and legs, abdomen and back, you could probably make about three to 5,000 units of vitamin D. But like I said, you never, ever want to get a sunburn that's what increases your risk for the deadly skin cancer, melanoma. And you want to get some sensible sun exposure, as I outline in the vitamin D solution. Do I understand this right, that a lot of the people who get melanoma are people that don't have an optimal range of vitamin D in their body and are not getting sensible sun exposure? In other words, they're out of the sun too much. It's well documented, and it's very interesting and curious, that most melanomas occur on the least sun-exposed areas, and occupational sun exposure decreases your risk for melanoma. 
we know that having a number of sunburning experiences as a child and young adult, being redheaded, having a large number of moles, and bad genetics, having a history, family history of having melanoma, are the major risks for developing melanoma. And so sensible sun exposure protects you from melanoma. Sensible sun exposure makes sure that your vitamin D status is in a healthy range. And whether or not the two are related, research is still underway to be able to determine whether that's true. You also said that people could cut down their degree of risk of diseases like prostate, breast, and colon cancer if they had enough vitamin D in their bodies and that it would cut the disease rate by 30 to 50%. That's huge. Yeah, I mean, the studies um, that were done by the Garland brothers and and, uh, William Grant uh, over the past decade and a half have been continuing to show that if you live at higher latitudes, so you're more prone to vitamin D deficiency, that you have as much as a 30 to 50% higher risk of developing colorectal cancer, breast cancer, um, and prostate cancer. Also, study done out of the uh, Nurses Health Study out of Harvard showed nurses that had the highest blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D on average, 48 nanograms per ml, reduced their risk of getting breast cancer by as much as 50%. Also, the Women's Health Initiative, it was found that those women who were most vitamin D deficient and followed for eight years on an insufficient amount of vitamin D, had a 253% higher risk of developing colorectal cancer than women who started out at a higher blood level of 25-hydroxyvitamin D. So there is continued evidence to suggest that improving your vitamin D status can reduce your risk of some of these more deadly cancers, including breast cancer and colon cancer. How often do you test yourself? Well, I test myself only because people like you are constantly asking me to do so. <laughs> but the endocrine practice guidelines, and, and I was the chair of this, and, and I agree with this, is that you don't really need to test. It's, it's expensive. In fact, what you really want to do is to increase your vitamin D intake. If you're normal weight, right, and you have none of the risk factors, you know, such as obesity and taking, say, prednisone or taking anti-seizure medications or um, you're African-American, right, you can take an adult two to 3,000 units a day, and if you don't have a malabsorption problem, you can raise your blood levels perfectly fine. You can feel confident that they're going to be perfectly fine. But those that are obese, pregnant, on these medications we've talked about, Yes, you need to be tested, you need to be treated, and you need to be followed. And I usually like to follow these patients like three months later to be sure I've corrected their vitamin D deficiency, and then once a year thereafter. Now, you also say in here that the benefits of boosting calcium all the way to weight loss, that even if you don't have enough calcium, that can also get in the way of vitamin D absorption and your levels. Is that correct? Well, what we know is that if you're vitamin D deficient, you can't absorb calcium very efficiently. So normally, if you're vitamin D sufficient, you can absorb about 30 to 40% of the calcium that's in your diet. During pregnancy and during lactation and during the growth spurt for children, they can absorb 60 to 80% because of vitamin D helping them to do that. If you're vitamin D deficient, however, you only absorb 10 to 15% of the calcium that is in your diet. And as a result, you can't get enough 
from your diet, you will go to your bones, which is the uh, major storage form, and you'll take it out. Therefore, increasing your risk for developing osteoporosis later in life, as well as increasing risk for fracture. Talk to us about the vitamin D lamps. Obviously, you're involved in it, you advocate it, and you make it available to people who are interested. Talk about them. Yeah, so there's uh, one lamp that's been sanctioned by the FDA for producing vitamin D. It's called a SPERTI lamp, S-P-E-R-T-I. And you can also find that information on my website and in the book. Um, We've done studies. And uh, working with my colleague um, down in Emory, um, Dr. Tanpricha, showed that um, children and adults with cystic fibrosis that have a major problem in absorbing vitamin D from supplements or diet when exposed to this lamp could raise their blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D. We have study underway right now in patients with fat malabsorption syndromes like Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease, patients who have had bypass surgery for obesity. Um, a study underway suggests that this lamp can be very effective in raising blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. So the lamp is, is, a, is a, a nice way for those that can't absorb vitamin D from supplements, which is what I usually recommend, is a good way for them to be able to make vitamin D and satisfy their body's requirements. And so I typically recommend that you follow the manufacturer's advice and expose like the thighs maybe one day and then wait a day and maybe expose the abdomen the next day and maybe the back so that you're exposing different areas of your body for the period of time that's recommended, which is not sun-burning um, levels, but sub-sun-burning levels, what we call sub-erythemal doses. Talk a little bit about the tanning beds because they're different. What's your advice to the public about them? Sure. So first of all, just to be sure, uh, in both my first book and in now The Vitamin D Solution, on basically the first page I make it clear, I do not advocate tanning. But those that wish to do should do it responsibly and never, ever get a sunburn. But we were curious because most tanning beds that um, have a fluorescent lamp-type system mimic sunlight. So they put out vitamin D producing UVB. And so I asked the question, if we were to measure the vitamin D status in tanners in Boston at the end of the winter and compare them to healthy adults that have never been to a tanning bed, what would the difference be? Tanners had on average blood levels of 48 nanograms per ml, healthy, robust levels. Those adults not going to a a tanning bed their blood level on average was 18 nanograms per ml. They were basically all vitamin D deficient. We also went on to show that we did bone density on them and showed that tanners had a higher bone density than non-tanners. So do I advocate tanning bed for you getting your vitamin D? No, but that may be a benefit uh, for those that wish to tan responsibly. But if you have patients with fat malabsorption syndromes like Crohn's disease, for example, or inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, often I'll tell my patient, yes, you could get the spurty lamp, but if for some reason you don't have the resources to do that, you can go to a tanning salon, go in for about 50% of the time recommended for tanning, protect your face with a sunscreen or a towel, but then expose the rest of your body because your body can make vitamin D 
It introduces it into the body, and you use it just as you would as if you took it as a supplement. And it does stay in the body longer, doesn't it, when you get it through ultraviolet? Uh, we did the study and showed that if you um, expose a person to ultraviolet light, that yes, the blood level slowly goes up over a period of 24 hours or so and lasts in the body for at least three to four days. When you take a vitamin D pill orally, it goes up quickly at about 12 hours and is back down to almost your baseline level by 72 hours within three days. Is that because it goes to the liver? No, it turns out that the reason is because, remember, when you're making vitamin D in your skin, um, that it takes a little bit of time to get that vitamin D to be formed from its precursor after you're exposed to sunlight, and then it takes time to get out of the skin into the bloodstream. So you have basically a constant supply coming out of your skin into your blood, whereas if you take it orally, you only get a peak blood level, right? And it quickly goes down. So do you recommend if people are going to supplement that they do it twice a day maybe so that you're maintaining your levels? It does not make any difference at all because ultimately it gets converted to 25-hydroxy vitamin D in your liver and that half-life is two to three weeks. So, so the body doesn't really care. But what is interesting is that because it lasts longer, um, it may be that it's more efficiently used by the body and converted to 25-hydroxy vitamin D. Very interesting. So what happens when you give somebody 50,000 units in one swing? Yeah, we've, you know, we've again reported on this and showed the blood level goes basically from undetectable, which is about zero, to up to 50 nanograms per ml for vitamin D, and then rapidly declines within 48 to 72 hours. But how do you then maintain the level? Well, like I said, what happens is the vitamin D, when you take it, gets immediately gets incorporated into your body fat and it's slowly released back into the bloodstream. And so you're constantly still making in the liver 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And that is sustained. Even if you take 50,000 units once every two weeks, the body is perfectly happy with that. And so vitamin D is very forgiving. So you can take it on a full stomach, on an empty stomach, right? You don't need fat to absorb vitamin D. And that's why we did a seminal study for Minute Maid and showed that you could put vitamin D in orange juice and it was perfectly fine in raising blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. So also, uh, you could take it once a day. You forget it, you could take two the next day. If you forget it for seven days, you could take seven for the week. And that's why taking 50,000 units every two weeks works just fine. Now, you may ask the question, why would I be giving my patients a prescription for vitamin D when they can easily just take it as a supplement? I have no problem at all in them taking the supplement. The issue really is, is it realistic? Will your patient, of all the things going on in their lives, think about taking their vitamin D every day, year after year? Probably not. But if you give them a prescription, they're likely to fill it. And if they don't remember to fill it, the pharmacy often calls now in advance to tell you, by the way, your prescription is ready to be picked up. We filled it for you. What's your greatest challenge right now with respect to your current knowledge base with regard to vitamin D? There are two issues. The first is that um, people are still afraid of vitamin D because everybody's been taught that vitamin D is this toxic, fat-soluble vitamin. And so when I started to suggest to physicians um, several years ago that you could give your patients 50,000 units of vitamin D, 
I mean, they thought that I was coming from planet Mars. I mean, they were absolutely convinced that this was going to cause major toxicity. But we've now published enough papers and others have published similar papers clearly demonstrating that, in fact, we may have been off by a factor of 10 for the amount of vitamin D that people need. So children, 600 to 1,000 units a day. Adults, 1,500 to 2,000. And for me, like I said, I take 3,000 units a day. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that um, physicians are finally kind of getting on the bandwagon of treating patients for vitamin D deficiency. But what they don't realize is that they didn't treat the problem, which is that the patient wasn't getting enough vitamin D in the first place. So often they'll tell the patient, take the 50,000 units once a week for eight weeks, and then go on your multivitamin or your 1,000 units of vitamin D a day. So the patient will gradually become vitamin D deficient again. And that's why I published that paper showing that even after six years on basically equivalent of 3,000 units a day, it is perfectly safe. It will not increase risk of kidney stones. It will not cause any toxicity. Are you concerned that the FDA is going to get involved and try to extract vitamin D3 from the supplement list? Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know what the FDA has in mind, um, you know, regarding this. But I think that um, you know, vitamin D as a supplement, um, I think, is very safe. I mean, I think that. What needs to be regulated is to be sure that it's made under, um, you know, good manufacturing practices, that, um, you know, people can be confident about what they're taking. Because we had reported one case of a gentleman in Florida who went on the Internet to buy a product many years ago when you couldn't get a vitamin D supplement in the pharmacy. And he became severely vitamin D intoxicated. When we did an analysis of the product, it turned out that he wasn't taking a thousand units in a teaspoon. He was taking a million units in a teaspoon. Oh my God. <laughs> right. And there's a recent study um, that we just published with a group in New York and showed that a very famous guru in nutrition that had contracted with a company to make a vitamin D capsule for him and for his clients that he took. All of his clients and he became severely vitamin D intoxicated because they were, the company made a mistake in their calculation and they put in a thousand times more vitamin D that was supposed to be there. Seriously, that can happen in any business, any organization, and we could probably talk about vaccines and all the horrific things that are in vaccines, but I think the human error part is true anywhere. True. But I see, I get I your point. A reputable manufacturer, sure. that's likely to happen. Sure. Calcium. I want to go back to calcium, if you don't mind, for just a couple of minutes. The fact that you need a certain amount of calcium so that you can properly absorb the vitamin D or to make vitamin D. Is that correct? No, it's the other way around. If you don't have enough vitamin D, you can't use your calcium very well. And we know that if you have enough vitamin D on board, there was a study done in Iceland showing that you actually need less calcium to maintain your overall health and well-being for bone health. Got it. Yeah, calcium has no influence whatsoever on vitamin D absorption or vitamin D utilization. Okay. In terms of the other people that are out there right now talking about vitamin D, 
Are you are you in harmony with them and the things they're saying? Are you do you know who they are? Are you part of the of is there a, something called the Vitamin D Institute? Right. So there, there is a gentleman out there who developed the Vitamin D Council that um, you know he's doing his own thing and, and promoting vitamin D, which I think is fine. Um, I, there are a lot of experts in vitamin D that are doing lots of clinical trials right now to try to get enough information to convince people that can reduce risk for type 2 diabetes, heart attack, infectious diseases, uh, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis. So there are a lot of physicians, a lot of experts in vitamin D that are all on the same wavelength, that they believe that enhancing your vitamin D intake can definitely improve your overall health and well-being. Have you ever sat with the other people that you you know were referring to? Oh yes, many times. I see them at meetings, um, I, and I'm constantly on emails with them. We're constantly exchanging ideas and papers that I publish and they publish. We exchange, so we we really keep up to date on the newest and latest information on vitamin D. The other day, I did uh, I I did an interview with Dr. Jonathan Wright from Washington State, and uh, during the interview, and I, we were talking about hormones. We were focused completely on hormones, although we weren't talking about vitamin D. They were like male and female hormones. And I think in one instance, we talked about how sometimes that uh, pregnant mothers will be breastfeeding, but the milk that they're giving to their children uh, in the breastfeeding process, they don't have vitamin D in there. Correct. Yep. Why? Oh, it's simple. Because, in fact, we did a study. We showed that of 40 moms, pregnant women, that were getting 400-unit multivitamin through the perinatal, prenatal vitamin, drinking two glasses of milk a day. So 40 women that were taking 600 units a day during their pregnancy, at the time that they gave birth, 76% of them were vitamin D deficient. 81% of their infants were vitamin D deficient. It's been demonstrated by Dr. Hollis and Dr. Wagner that lactating women require 4,000 to 6,000 units a day in order to put enough vitamin D in their milk to satisfy their infant's requirement. There's only about 20 to 30 units in a pint of human milk from a mom who is not well supplemented with vitamin D. Now, you may ask the question, how is that possible? Well, it's simple. Our hunter-gatherer forefathers were outside every day, exposed to sunlight every day. They were making thousands of units of vitamin D a day. So it's not at all a surprise to me and to many of the experts that, in fact, that's exactly what we all need, thousands of units of vitamin D a day to satisfy our requirement, and that includes pregnant and lactating women. It's really profound. Well, not only is it profound, but we also showed that during pregnancy, if women are vitamin D deficient, they have a much higher risk of having preeclampsia, the most serious complication of pregnancy. And we also did a study in over 200 women at our hospital, and we looked at their vitamin D status at the time that they gave birth and showed that there was about a 400% higher risk of needing a C-section if they were vitamin D deficient at the time they gave birth. That is also profound. My God, why isn't that all over the news? Well, when, when we published this, you know, it did get a lot of press. 
Um, and then in typical fashion, they poo-poo it because they say, well, it's an association study. You didn't do a randomized controlled trial. Well, I mean, it's not that easy to do a randomized controlled trial. Um, and we, you know, followed these women. I mean, I, these women I knew were taking 70% of the time their multivitamin, drinking two glasses of milk a day. They were getting 600 units of vitamin D a day. And like I said, 76% of moms at the time they gave birth were vitamin D deficient. The Institute of Medicine recommends all pregnant women be on 600 units of vitamin D a day. I think that that is an error. I think that pregnant women should be taking minimum of 2,000 units of vitamin D a day. 3,000 units of vitamin D a day is probably preferred. And even up to 6,000. Can be, yeah. And, you know, and, and if they're concerned about this, they could have their doctor monitor their blood level of 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And if it doesn't go, you know, above um, uh, 80 to 100, there's of no concern. I think there's also a distinction, doctor. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole concept of what's optimal, if you look at the anti-aging industry, they're going to have a certain level be what's optimal. If you look at traditional medical care, the standard's going to be very low. Just as you've been talking about earlier in the show, it's totally different levels of what's considered optimal. Right. So like I said, the Endocrine Practice Guidelines Committee, and we were all experts in the field of vitamin D, came to the conclusion that increasing your vitamin D intake to raise your blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D above 30 nanograms per ml will improve your bone health and improve muscle function. Also, we concluded that there really is no downside to increasing your vitamin D intake because many of these other benefits that we've talked about, if any one of them turn out to be true, all the more reason to be vigilant about your vitamin D intake and to take my advice that I have in the vitamin D solution, the three-part solution, which is make sure you're taking an adequate amount in supplementation have some foods that contain vitamin D, such as wild-caught salmon, dairy products, as well as orange juice that's fortified with calcium and vitamin D, and also some sensible sun exposure. Never get a sunburn. You make this distinction that vitamin D is not a vitamin. It's a hormone. And you explain it thoroughly in the book, but the essence of the distinction is what? And why is it relevant to know the By difference? By definition, vitamin means that you have to get it from an external dietary source that you cannot make it. So the fact that you can make vitamin D in your skin automatically makes it a hormone. But what even makes it clear that vitamin D is a hormone, by definition, a hormone is a uh, compound that's made in one organ of the body and then is released into the circulation or released into the extracellular space to have an effect on a different organ or on a different cell. So since vitamin D has to go to your liver and kidneys before it goes to your intestine and bone and other organs in your body to carry out its biologic effect, again, by definition, it's a hormone, not a vitamin. Clear. If somebody loses 30 or 50 pounds of body fat, is it likely that they will, over the months to come, be better makers and stores of vitamin D because it's not being trapped in their fat? We've done the study. And we, and we actually, we asked a different question. We asked the question, what if you have all this vitamin D stored in your body fat 
and you go, say, for a bariatric surgery, and you now lose 50%, uh, you know, 50 pounds of body fat in a year. Do you mobilize all that vitamin D? Does your body use that vitamin D? The answer is no. It turns out, curiously, that the body fat destroys the vitamin D and doesn't let it get back out to the bloodstream. But if you lose the body fat, you're right that when you're now have a BMI of less than 30, your body is more efficient in using the vitamin D that you're ingesting or making in your skin. And as a result, it's easier to stay vitamin D sufficient. That's what I was getting. Oh, that's great. That's great news. But if you have bypass surgery, right, it's a different story. Yeah, exactly. You're bypassing the area that's responsible for absorbing vitamin D. So those patients often have a very difficult time in absorbing vitamin D. And so many of them will benefit from a spurty lamp. And like I said, we have a study underway right now doing that. Do you feel like you have a tiger by the tail? <laughs> well, I mean, from my perspective, you know, people always ask me this question. Usually you have to die before people appreciate what you're doing. And so for me, it's been just wonderful. I mean, I could never have anticipated um, all of the interest in this area, you know, and, and I'm really pleased. You know, many people have told me that because of the vitamin D story, and this is not just for the United States, but this is globally. I mean, it's estimated that up to 90% of physicians in Mumbai, India, were found to be vitamin D deficient. 30% of children in um, New Delhi were found to be severely vitamin D deficient. 90% of adults and children living in Dubai and Qatar and um, UAE, vitamin D deficient. 50% of children living in Beijing, vitamin D deficient. All of these physicians around the world are beginning to get the message. They're beginning now to treat and correct vitamin D deficiency worldwide. And so it's been suggested that this vitamin D story probably has touched more lives and improved the health of more people on this planet than almost anything else. You know, it's great to hear you so positive and excited about it. Usually by this time, somebody who's pioneering something or leading the way in a body of discoveries is tired and a little bit embittered and not a happy camper. And I don't hear that with you. I'm having a blast. I mean, <laughs> you know, all that's what I can say. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for, like I said, 40 years. And, and I joke about it uh, when I give presentations. But I've always, you know, 30, even 10 years ago, it was like I was a Maytag repairman, right? <laughs> Is that, you know, nobody wanted to listen. I mean, I would talk, I'd get up in front of you, I'd talk about vitamin D, everybody go to sleep. And, and the joke is true, is that I was invited to a, a um, um, society down in Florida to give a presentation, and there was only one person in the audience. And so <laughs> I was thrilled that at least I had one person, so I gave my presentation, and I thanked the gentleman for coming to my talk. I said, did you have any questions? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm the next speaker. <laughs> It's such a turnaround. I mean, usually wherever I give a presentation now, um, it's it's standing room only. What do you think it's due to? Do you think part of it has to do with the way that you're bringing it about? Personally, I think that the, the major driver for this has definitely been people like you and the press. There's no question about it. And because, you know, the Internet is so pervasive now and getting information out so quickly, it really has been the patients teaching the physicians. 
And I can give you one last anecdote. Sure. Uh, and that is that I, I was um, guest of honor at a family medicine meeting, and I was the keynote speaker. And, bef- and I'm ready to give my talk. And about 10 minutes before I'm giving my talk, this delightful woman comes up to me. She's probably about 45 years of age. And she says she's just most appreciative of what I've been doing. And she's most grateful because I've given her life back. And I said, I didn't know who this person was. So it turned out that she was the former president of the Family Medicine Association. And two years before, she said, a patient came to her with my New England Journal review. And by the way, you can get that on my website that you, that you gave. And the patient showed the physician and said, I have aches and pains in my bones and muscles. And I have stiffness in my joints when I get up in the morning. And I feel depressed in the morning. And Dr. Hollick said in his review that many of these symptoms are consistent with vitamin D deficiency. What do you think? And her response was, you're crazy. So in typical fashion, the patient persisted and got her to uh, order the blood test. So she did. Found the patient was vitamin D deficient. Treats the patient. The patient comes back two months later thrilled that all of her symptoms are resolved. Well, the physician now realizes, oh, my God, when I get up in the morning, I have stiffness in my joints, and I feel fatigue and weakness. And so she took her own advice and took vitamin D and found that she got her life back. She said, it's amazing what has happened. I have much more energy. I have none of these aches and pains in my muscles and bones anymore. And she was most grateful to me saying that she, as physician, healed thyself. That's a great story. How much would you say that vitamin D helps the immune system? Well, I mean, your immune cells have a vitamin D receptor, and Dr. Adams and Maudlin out in California showed very nicely that the cells that gobble up infectious processes, like TB, for example, that they need vitamin D. They activate it locally, and what it does is it tells the cell to make a thalassidin, which is a defense in protein that kills infective agents. There was a study done at Yale, and they showed that men and women that had the highest intake of vitamin D reduced risk of getting up respiratory tract infections by as much as 50%. A study done in Japan showed children taking 1,200 units of vitamin D a day from December through March reduce their risk of getting influenza A infection by as much as 42%. So vitamin D is very important as an immunomodulator, and we think that that's the reason why children that got 2,000 units of vitamin D a day for the first year of life in Finland followed for the first 31 years, reduce their risk of getting type 1 diabetes by 88%. Reduces risk of getting multiple sclerosis by 100% if you are born below Atlanta, Georgia and live there for the first 10 years of your life. So yes, vitamin D plays a very important role in immunomodulation, reducing risk of autoimmune diseases, and help us fight infectious diseases. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I really want to thank you for being on the show with us today and for the books that you've written and for everything that you're doing for the well-being of people around the world. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so very much for the opportunity to share it with you and your listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. We've been listening to Dr. Michael Hollick. You can reach Dr. Hollick at drhollick.com. Pick up the book, The Vitamin D Solution, A Three-Step Strategy to Cure Our Most Common Health Problems. 
And if there's any new discoveries or any new testing that you've done, Dr. Hollick, we'd love to have you come back. Thank you so much. My pleasure.